Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Beverly Hills, California, and in particular, the Montage Hotel. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837, that's 888-88-PETER, and if you can't get through on the phones, you know exactly what to do. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Well, here we are in the heart of the Golden Triangle. No, we're not talking about poppies and uh, heroin. In, in Asia, this is the Golden Triangle of Beverly Hills. Uh, this hotel, they broke ground here in 2005, about a $300 million investment, and uh, it is a private luxury hotel company uh, that's uh, perfectly positioned right now uh, as, as the newest real big entrant in Beverly Hills, a, a, a city that hasn't really had a new hotel uh, in a long, long time. Uh, uh, now, a lot of things to talk about in the news, so let's get that out of the way first. And then we can talk about a lot of more fun things in Beverly Hills. Uh, my next guest has been all over the world many times with me, or I should say I've been all over the world many times with him. Uh, he's the president, CEO, and founder of Operation USA. And when we talk about stuff in the news, uh, sadly, we have to talk about Operation USA because it's because of the news that Operation USA exists. Uh, they do unbelievable work in areas that are in need. Uh, where disaster strikes, uh, whether they're natural events or, 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 or wars. Uh, and uh, Richard Walden has been doing this for how many years, Richard? 37. But who's counting? Uh, bottom line is, whether there's an earthquake in Nepal or more, or more recently, the terrible earthquake in Ecuador, uh, his people, his teams are on the ground uh, within hours, sometimes maybe a day or two, with much-needed supplies. He is a master magician of... Uh, convincing CEOs of airlines to give them 100,000 pounds of cargo space at a moment's notice to get the right people to the right place with the right equipment to give the help where it's needed the most. most. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. I mean, we talk about Nepal. It's, it's over a year since that earthquake, and they're still in bad shape. It's a complete mess. There was $4.1 billion pledged by the world's governments, the World Bank, other multilateral donors. Almost none of that money has gotten there because the Nepal government collapsed, essentially. It's dysfunctional. So you've got millions of Nepalis still either living large out, outside or in very tenuous circumstances. Uh, nobody's going to send that money, and those governments, as you well know, will reprogram that commitment somewhere else if it doesn't happen. The private groups, like Operation USA, 
have been doing okay. Nepal has been a major aid recipient of small types of things that are tied to mountain climbing or Buddhism or what have you for decades. But that's not the kind of money that is going to take to rebuild the place. And uh, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, 37 years ago when you founded this, you did it. There's a Beverly Hills connection. We, we founded it as Operation California. We were based at uh, Foothill and Third in Beverly Hills. Uh, it, was, it struck people as funny until we told them that Julie Andrews was a co-founder with me. And they said, oh, okay, she lives in Beverly Hills at that time. <laughs> and so it sort, of, it, it sort of took the laugh out of it. But uh, we changed our name to reflect our national constituency. We are not government-funded, despite our name, Operation USA. We are not a religious group, and we don't have an endowment. So every year starts out with donated corporate supplies, healthcare companies, supplies, equipment, and, of course, the travel industry being the bulwark of it, that's how we started. We got a donated DC-10 from what was McDonnell Douglas Aircraft when the planes were all grounded. We convinced the chairman of McDonnell Douglas in 1979. He needed some good PR. He gave us a cargo plane. We flew it to a refugee camp for Vietnamese boat refugees in Malaysia. And from there, the story, as you well know, was the airline industry jumped in both passenger and cargo carriers. Uh, United, in particular, for the last uh, 18 or 19 years, has been a major donor. And what United does, let's say, in Ecuador, um, is they set up a crowdfunding site with just two or three charities on it, and they send to all their frequent flyer members um, to donate either miles directly to us or to donate cash, and United will give them some miles as a bonus, as a thank you. And I will say this, you know, if you take a look at what happened in Ecuador, the coastal cities got hit pretty hard, but the capital city of Quito, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, was not that badly damaged. The airport's open, the hotels are open, the restaurants are open, and in a country that where the, where the oil prices have essentially flatlined, they depend so much on travel and tourism as an economic driver and, and employment opportunity that this is probably the best time, not for first responders, it's the best time for travelers to go visit and spend their money in Quito because it's open. And the last time we were, in fact, in Ecuador was 1987 when there was a quake on the Amazon side in eastern Ecuador. And two of us, uh, two of my staff, flew down and were given a helicopter by the government to do a needs assessment up along the Amazon. And we were able to get an airline to fly some stuff in for us. This one is going to be a very long-term thing. Because, because the roads. Roads are lousy. Luckily, the port of Guayaquil which is the southernmost part that the quake touched, is functioning, and that'll be the supply depot. It's not going to be Quito. Uh, it'll be shipping No, to but for, for people listening to this program who are just travelers, and nothing wrong with being a traveler, this is the time to go there because, they, first of all, they need your support as travelers. Mm -hmm. They're functioning very, very well, and what better time to go than when they need you? You and I think alike on that. I think it's always good to do that. We told people to go to Haiti after the quake, not during the cholera epidemic, but after the quake earlier. Sure. Um, because there were some things that were functioning and it's important to support the economy. Because you imagine the tourism industry was just decimated by that. But the quake, like this thing in Ecuador, did not affect the entire country. Large parts of Haiti were unaffected by it. Cruise lines were still going to private beaches and it was a little discordant to think of. But they were doing. But it was economic. It was economic aid. Yeah, and also the prices in Ecuador now would be very, very cheap compared to what they were before the quake. Exactly. The website for Operation USA. It's www.opusa.org. Toto, I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. When I think of legends in the hotel business, 
one man comes to mind because I first met him when he was running the Carlisle Hotel in New York. Then he came out to the Bel Air in Bel Air, California, and not too far from here. And then he's now here at the Montage. Uh, holding the distinctive title of ambassador, and ambassador he indeed is, Frank Bowling. How are you, sir? Great to be here, Peter. Frank, you know, you've seen so many changes in the hotel business, but at the at the five-star level, there are certain things that have never changed, haven't they? Certain things never change, but other things have to change. You have to sort of be aware of what your clients want. There's a certain amount of standards that we have to keep, but then we have to You have adapt. to adjust. You have to adjust. You have to adjust to what your clients want. Well, when I first met you, you know, I mean, the Carlisle was one of those great iconic hotels where Bobby Short was playing. Uh, now Woody Allen on Monday nights, if you're lucky enough to sneak in there with him. Still there. He's still there. And, of course, the Carlisle Hotel, the, uh, the home of uh, John F. Kennedy when he was president, who used to sneak across the street when nobody was looking on Madison Avenue. We know those stories. But when you look at the Carlisle even today, very little has changed. Very little. When I'm in New York, I usually stay at the Carlisle. And you might know somebody there, huh? There's still so many of, <laughs> uh, of my old staff who still work there. And so it's a pleasure to pull up the front door, the doorman greet as you walk downstairs, the bellboy greets you, the front staff greets you, the concierge says hello, the, uh, the elevator operator. It's literally like going And out. by the way, did you hear what Frank just said? The elevator operator. There are only, I think, maybe three hotels left in New York that have elevator operators. One is the, the Carlisle, one is the Pierre, and one is the Sherry Netherlands. And I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Wow. As far as I know. But it's a wonderful comfort to go in late at night in New York City for single lady travelers who we used to keep a special eye on. And it's a sense of comfort when you go in there. Exactly. And then, of course, the Bel Air, the legendary Bel Air, the home of so many great stories. And now one of the newest entrants in the luxury travel market right here in, in, in Beverly Hills, the Montage. The Montage Hotel. Talk, great location. It's the best location in the city. Because? Not only that, but we also have our park. This is in walking distance of everything in Beverly Hills. And by the way, when Frank says it's in walking distance of everything in Beverly Hills, this is a city where nobody walks. So, I mean, if you go back and watch L.A. Story with Steve Martin, I mean, nobody walks. So if Frank says you can actually walk it, He's not kidding, and you can actually walk it. They're the natives here. They're the natives who don't walk, but most of our guests are from out of town, and so they do like to walk. They don't always have to have a car. I will tell you my native story. My mother was born and raised here in Los Angeles, and, oh, about 25 years ago, she came out to visit me, and, uh, and so she wanted to drive, and I didn't want her to drive. And she, said she insisted on driving. So I said, okay, and I loaned her my car, and she never showed up. Where's she supposed to go? And I finally, and I, and you know, she didn't have a cell phone. And finally, I get a phone call from the Beverly Hills Police Department. She was pulled over for driving too slowly. Uh, uh. And when she got pulled over, she remembered Beverly Hills when it was all orange groves. And, and so she, and the cops were like 26 years old. So she, she was, I went and picked her up at the police station. They loved, they didn't want her to go. She was telling them all the history about what, who used to live over here and Carrie, Carrie Grant and Clark Gable over here. And, and, you know what? You can do the same thing. You know. When I first moved here 22 years ago, I had to learn to drive. I'd never need to drive <laughs> in New York or in London before that. And I live five blocks from here, and I drive to work. My New York friends are horrified that I would drive five blocks to work. They don't know that I drive four blocks to the market. I, although your New York friends would come out here and try to hail a cab and be terribly disappointed. So it works both ways. Exactly. The so times that I do walk, actually, Peter, I, I walk about twice a week I walk. And sometimes a police cruiser will cruise the street and slowly pull up and say, do you need help, sir? And say, no, I'm just walking to work. Well, you know what, Frank? I, I got to give you the part B of that story. So I took the car away from her. She, went, she, she started to walk in Beverly Hills. She was walking down Sunset Boulevard over by the, the, the Beverly Hills Hotel. She got pulled over for walking. And, and next thing you know, I had to go pick her up. And they knew her by this time. I had to go pick her up at the police station. It was like Beverly Hills Cop Part 3. You know, I loved it. But the point is you really can walk to everywhere from here. Yes, you can. We're a block from Radio Drive. We have our own park. Cannon Drive is Restaurant Row. Beverly Drive is sort of what Rodeo was several years ago before it became Rodeo Drive with smaller boutique-style shops. We have our own park here in front. Now, is it true that on Rodeo Drive when they have a sale, they reduce things to retail? (laughs) I just want to know. Is that? Well, we still have needless markup, don't forget. Yes. (laughs) On Wilshire. On Wilshire. Absolutely. What's been the biggest surprise to you coming to the montage that you weren't expecting? The way the clientele has changed in the eight years that I've been here. The hotel has been open seven. I was here a year before. And technology has, has forced everyone to, to adapt to what our clients want. We've recently installed tablets in every room. And it's been so well received. I was a little skeptical, I have to say, 
when we first brought it up, but it's just been so well-received. People love the fact that they can come in, open the shades, put the television on, order a wake-up call. All from the tablet. Everything all from their little tablet. It's an amazing thing. See, now I do all that from my rotary phone. There you are. (laughs) But you're used to this kind of thing. And it's not only our younger guests. Some of our older guests are also tech-savvy, and they they like the convenience of being able to, to do that. However... They do have the uh, alternative of being able to pick up the phone. Yes, and they want that personal service. Uh. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. Uh, so much to talk about this city, this community, and I figured, you know what, who better to talk about it than the former mayor, Dr. Julian Gold. Welcome aboard. Peter, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. Uh, you know, you're a New Yorker like I am. I am. Born and I, raised in New York. I you're, was. I, well, I know. I we'll, was. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but you were an NYU graduate, right? Uh, right? NYU Medical School. Right. And, where, and, and what hospitals were you doing? I was at University Hospital, Bellevue Hospital. Okay, my dad was at Bellevue as well, and uh, and also Mount Sinai. Wow. And then all of a sudden, you woke up one day and said, "Okay, enough with the salt on the streets in the winter. I'm moving west." Something too, like that. Too cold. And too, you too and, cold. and you moved west. I moved west. And you're now at Cedars. I am at Cedars Sinai, head of anesthesiology. True. Right. So you promised not to put me to sleep on the air. No. <laughs> <laughs> but if I do, I'll wake you up. That's a good anesthesiologist. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to bring me back. You got to bring me back. When you first came out here, what year was that? 1982. All right, so it's been 34 years. It has been a long time. Right. What was the biggest surprise for you then, and what's the biggest surprise for you now about Beverly Hills? Well, uh, I didn't live in Beverly Hills for the first 10 years of my time in Well, they didn't uh, let you. They wouldn't let you. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I had to get to know them. Um, Beverly Hills has actually grown. It's become a much more... It was always a sophisticated city. It's a a unique place. It's, It's this green garden spot that has all of this international shopping and this huge reputation and movie stars and all that, but... The reality of Beverly Hills is it's a small town, right. and there are 35,000 people here. And if you didn't know that it was Beverly Hills, you can be in a small town almost anywhere. Everybody knows everybody's kids, local schools, um, soccer games, Little League. You could even be mayor. You could even be mayor. I mean, what are the chances that a nice Jewish boy from New York you know, is going to land up being the mayor of Beverly Hills. I mean, it's you know what? That's, unfathomable. That's a comedy series on NBC, <laughs> if ever. <laughs> unfathomable. Uh, but here it is. And, um, yeah, it's been an amazing ride. And as the mayor of Beverly Hills, or when you were the mayor of Beverly Hills, I mean, what comes along with that job? It's not just a ceremonial job. No, it's not. Um, it's a real city. Cities have real budgets and real budgetary uh, problems. Uh, ours are no different than other cities. Um, you know, the, the president, uh, Mr. Obama, said at a U.S. conference of mayors that whether you're Democrat or Republican, if you're a mayor, the garbage has to get picked up. And well, you know, it's what Tip O'Neill said. All politics is local. It is. And if you think the about it. The garbage has to get picked up. The schools have to run and the buses have to show up. And the parks have to be pretty and there have to be after school activities. And police and fire guys have to show up promptly and be pleasant. Uh, we have to be safe. We have to be happy. Seventy or 80 percent of what makes people happy comes out of local government. And, um, you know, we don't worry about the big issues. You know, I, I can't worry about those things. But making sure that all of those things that are local uh, really are in our purview and are ours to fix. Now, you were on the city council first. I still am. Yeah, yeah. but you started there. I did start on the council. I actually started running, uh, a buddy of mine was running for the school board and an, an orthopedic and he, and he shamed you into it, didn't he? Well, not quite. But we were both working in the OR at the time. He was an orthopedic surgeon. I was an anesthesiologist. He said to me one day, I'm going to run for the school board. Do you want to work for my campaign? And I said, sure. What does that mean? And that was kind of the beginning. I ran for the campaign. I enjoyed it. I ran for some others. I got involved. We have a wonderful training program, leadership training program in Beverly Hills called Team Beverly Hills, where we take our residents and put them through 10 or 12 weeks. They get to spend uh, an evening with the fire department and the police department and public works and and uh, so I did that. I did and, that. And you can do that in a city that's as small and as manageable as Beverly Hills. Absolutely. We put 500 and some odd people through this training program, and probably 70% of the city commissioners have come out of it. And it's just an, an in-depth view of make, what makes a city run, 
how do the streets get paved and how do the streetlights work and how does the water get delivered? Now, I'm always fascinated with the, with the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the derivation or, the, or, the, or the, uh, the history of buildings. And Beverly Hills has a few. Oh, we have many. I mean, the one with Will Rogers is a very funny story. The, you're talking about the post office. The walrus. Oh. Uh, our most famous Will Rogers, I think the, our most famous Will Rogers uh, building was the post office. Will Rogers was getting um, mail from all over the world. People all over the world would put it on the envelope, Will Rogers, and it would get to him. And he was living in Beverly Hills. And he went to FDR. It was the Depression time. He said to FDR, I want a post office. <laughs> so FDR built him a post office. He built him a post office in 1933. And today that post office, which is on Santa Monica Boulevard, uh, has been repurposed as the front part of our new Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts. We're used to buy stamps. Now you buy tickets. And it's extraordinary. You walk in there with the marble floors and the original frescoes and the seal of the United States. You couldn't build that building today. It's extraordinary. Right. It's extraordinary. And they're still late in delivering the mail, so it's okay. <laughs> and some things never change. Some things never change. <laughs> What's the biggest surprise today for you about Beverly Hills? I think really the community style, I mean, now that I know, yeah. but as I got to do it, just the fact that it was such a small town, I think um, what we've tried to do, um, and I think um, having Scarian um, um, here is, a, is sort of an outgrowth of that, is to keep the city fresh, to keep doing new things, because you can't rest on your laurels and what was once... Uh, exciting, sometimes dulls, and you have to keep it polished. I mean, one of the good stories is when they built this hotel, they mm -hmm. couldn't build it until they satisfied you guys on the parking. Absolutely. Well, parking is a huge issue, parking yeah. and traffic. I started my, um, my career, my political career, on the Traffic and Parking Commission. Oh, you were Dr. No. Oh, you were <laughs> Dr. No. Oh, my God. Well, I figured it was something I knew something about. Everybody uh, complained about traffic and parking, so I could do that, you know. And it was true. Everybody complained about traffic and parking, so <laughs> I was clearly an expert in that. But you must have done something, right, because then you became mayor. Well, it took a while, but here I am, yeah. I love it. This is a spectacular hotel. We have a number of spectacular hotels. But I have to say, as I'm sitting here looking at the hills behind you and kind of overlooking um, the view here, it's really just amazing. And they figured out the parking. And they did figure out the parking. And once you can do that in in Los Angeles, because it's all it's all driven by the cars. All, absolutely. Once you do that, anything is absolutely possible. Right. Your favorite place to eat, real fast. Can't tell you that. Yes, you can. I can't. You have I to. I won't. You have I to. I can't. I get killed. Every place in town. You are such a politician. <laughs> I had the fire chief. He told me everything. Did he tell you everything? Yeah. I don't believe it. He's smarter than that. This is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. My next guest uh, has a lot to say about American cuisine. He's so much a part of it. Legendary restaurateur and chef. Opening up a new restaurant here at the hotel called Georgie, but of course I know him for so many other things he's done: the Lambs Club and the National in New York City, the Water Club at the Borgata in Atlantic City, cookbooks, recipes. He's everywhere. Jeffrey Zakarian, how are you, sir? Peter, how are you? Thank you. That's very kind of you. Welcome you got to the it. montage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And welcome to you to the montage. Uh, I you know. know. I'm so excited. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, what is it that you're doing here that I'll be devil's advocate, you know, because everybody wants to do something new, innovative, cutting edge, or maybe not too cutting edge, maybe more basic. What are you, what's good, what are you doing here that's going to be different? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I'm uh, very excited about being in Los Angeles. Uh, the Montage have been great partners. Um, and uh, I don't know if I hadn't run into the Montage people if I would be in L.A. this, this quickly because uh, I sort of do a lot of restaurants and hotels. I love hotels. Uh, I love the vibe they bring. I love the, the, the sort of roundness of a hotel guest and, and uh, tourists as well as or food people and everybody coming in at once. But the montage is very special because we're opening a restaurant called Georgie, and it's very much a cocktail-driven. We have two sides of it. One's the garden bar and one's Georgie, and it's very much cocktail-driven in, in the garden bar. 
and then Georgie is a large restaurant on the, on the ground floor. So we're, we're very excited about premiering this around June 6th. And, you know, we are not going to come in and do, I would say, cutting-edge food. Uh, I, I, you know, it's very hard to do something that's new. Everything really, in my opinion, isn't done before. So we're going to try to do stuff that's really, really good and really do it well. So I'm a big believer in doing focused food that's really good and that is consistent and people really can feel that it's really yummy and delicious. So that's what we're trying to do. All right. So it's yummy. It's delicious. Have you figured out, have you crafted the menu yet? We are actually right now working on the menu. Um, We're having a very, one of our final tastings on Saturday, as you know, or maybe not know, but one of the, you know, menus are very easy to write. They sort of write themselves because, you know, you're all in your head and then you write it and it sounds great. And then you actually get the ingredients and you make it. And then it doesn't taste as good as it sounded. (laughs) So (laughs) it's a very, it's just the way it happens. And then, you correct it, and you correct it, and you usually do that two or three times to come up with something you feel is correct. Because what what for me is very important is I like to I like to cook for the room, meaning I like to feel the vibe and the environment I'm in and cook for that environment. I don't want to cook for just cook what I want to do and then like all of a sudden doesn't match the room. So at the montage and Georgie, we're going to have a very I would say comfortable, sophisticated room with a lot of color and a lot of comfort. So I, I want to make sure that the food reflects that. So we are now in deep, deep into tasting. And uh, it, it, it's also, it's the biggest part of the work we have to do. It's the most fun, but it's also the biggest amount of work because all the chefs and everybody are really cooking their hearts out trying to design something that really translates. So when people walk into Georgie, they get a sense like, wow, this is timeless. It's been here forever. And that's the sort of challenge, Peter, for any restaurant. It's something that, of course. been here before. All right, so let me ask this question because this is perfect timing to ask this question. What have you been working on in terms of the tastings, as you say, deep into tastings, that you had a high promise for and then realized this is not going to work, let's dump it, versus <laughs> something that you said, you know what, this has got yeah. no shot in hell, and all of a sudden it's your new fave dish? Well, here's what happens. It's really, it's very, very intuitive that you said that because – you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, coming up with dishes and we test dishes and we think this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then we actually do it. And the, and the problem is, is that when you, when you do something that you spend so much time on, the next day that customer comes in and says, I like the thing you don't spend a lot of time on the best. <laughs> so it's kind of frustrating, <laughs> but, you know, you got to listen to them because they're, they're it. And, and they tell you, they navigate, you give them a ship. And then the day the ship gets turned over to you, they get on board. They take the ship over. It's not like we don't take it over anymore. It's them. So it's a very fluid um, conversation, and the customer will tell you what they like. So the stuff so, I was what we have to do. So what we have to do. Go ahead. I was going to say what we have to do is is have an additional conversation three months from now and find out what's survived. Bingo. And that's you know that's what happens. The customer comes in. All the work you've done, all the effort, all the trickery, all the beauty, all the this and that, and all the little touches that you put. And they're like, you know what? I love that sweet potato fries. Those are my favorite. And you're like, what? Those are like an after. That was an afterthought. And, and that's what happens a lot. So the afterthoughts become forefront, and the things you spend so much time on sort of fade away. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You gotta pay Let's talk about another issue that I know you're near and dear to because it's been topic A in the restaurant industry for at least, what, a year in terms of what Danny Meyer was doing, and that is tipping. Um what, you know, is that really working out at his restaurants so that the people do not have to tip? I, you know, I can't speak for him. Um, I don't know his inside track. I know he fully committed to doing that. We, as of in New York City, have not. And there has actually been a lot of restaurants in the last week or two have actually tried that out and 
and abandon it. So I think it's an experiment that's worth experimenting with. But we actually asked our staff if they would rather abandon it or stay with and get a higher hourly, and they all asked for to stay with tipping. So, I mean, you know, the thing of the matter is that with tips, it's very sacred. It's not our money. We have nothing to do with it. And it's very important that they, they make their own decisions. So we try to respect that. So as of now, we're going to stay with our our, um, our policy, uh, which the vast majority of New York, New York restaurants are, very vast majority are, are staying with tipping. Exactly. Okay. It'll be interesting to see what happens because – Yeah, I, think I mean, a lot, I think it's too early really right now. But yeah. I, I think that, it, it, you know, the, even though the customer says, you know, explain to the customer that it's 20% and it's this and that. It, there's some sticker shock involved, and um, there is no free lunch. Either way, <laughs> the customer's paying. I love the idea that you said that quote. I love that. Uh, but here's the thing. It doesn't have a lot to do with price point. I mean, if you're going to a, a, you know, a Denny's, uh, they could probably get away with a different tipping policy than you would be happy with. Well, I mean, at a Denny's, would you tip 20%? There's a question. I mean, you don't think you have to tip 20% of the Denny's. Um, so, but in a restaurant where you have a front waiter, a back waiter, a captain, a sommelier, and all that, you're, you're, you're engaging all the staff. It's so expensive. I mean, you know, the, the largest percentage of cost in a restaurant in our caliber are, is the payroll. It's astounding. Right. So, uh, and at Denny's, I can't talk for it, but I, I know that we're like, it's incredibly expensive for us to run a restaurant. And, um, if we end up taking from someone, it's, for us, it seems to me that we're taking from the the customers because they're going to pay anyway. So it's an interesting experiment. I I, I really you know, I mean I you know, I worked in Europe right, in for years and they don't have any tipping in Europe, so uh, it's already included in the bill. But when you you do get sticker shock when you walk into a restaurant in Europe. Oh yeah, and by the way, there's no free lunch at Denny's either. <laughs> no free lunch anywhere. No. All right. Now, here's my other question for you, and I, I, I always want to engage in a conversation like this, and here's the question. You know, what's better, a restaurant that doesn't uh, in, insist on reservations, in fact, they don't take reservations, uh, and, they, and you have to wait, or a reservation, or a restaurant that insists on reservations, but they don't honor them? Uh, I, I'm one of those people who believes that a, restaura- a restaurant reservation is an implied contract on both ends. If I call up and make a reservation for 8 o'clock, I better show up at 8 o'clock. I mean, that's, it's incumbent upon me to do that. Uh, at the same time, if I do show up at 8 o'clock and the table's not ready, what happened to that reservation? You, you know what I'm saying? It's not that simple because if your table at 8 o'clock on, let's say it's like a, it's like a, it's a crapshoot. So 75 or 80% of the time, if your table is at 8 and that table is then a table, your table was a 6 o'clock table, they sat at six, then that person is going to turn and they're going to leave, and then at eight you're going to be there. The vast majority of the time, that works out. The person at six has a six. He shows up at six twenty. Suddenly it's eight fifteen, eight twenty. He's getting his coffee. Your eight o'clock is not ready. Whose fault is it? It's a very big issue, and we try to manage it in the restaurant business as well as we can. But we can't go to a customer and say leave. <laughs> because why it, it happens just, to me all the time no i'm kidding <laughs> it just doesn't happen it just can't do it so you have a glass of wine you're very sorry you might buy a first course but you know we we manage it so that our turn factor is enough that that we we you know it's like there's enough you know fat in the front and fat in the back that we can actually have that happen without I got a problem but jeffrey zakarian absolutely about- i'm actually I'm the same way as you. I, I think it should be honored. Absolutely. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. If you've been reading magazines like uh, Watch Magazine or Oprah, if you've been uh, listening to the news, you hear about you know luxury camping, or you hear about glamping, or you hear about about getaways. Uh, the, the one thing I hate, and, and my next guest probably hates the word as much as I do, is girlfriend getaway. Um, I mean, please. However, 
there is, where, you know, if, if necessity is truly the mother of invention, then my next guest, who's been on the show before, uh, will win a prize for that because she runs a group called Camp Powerment. Now, I happen to know her because I first met her when she was a producer at NBC when I was at the Today Show, and she was hanging out with Katie Couric and producing her stuff. And then she got smart. She left television. Can I say that? Absolutely. Okay. And started Camp Powerment. Tammy Fuller, will you please explain what it is? So Camp Powerment is really a place to go where you can find your purpose, figure I, out. I can't go. You can't. Yes, you can, actually. I right can now, go? Right now, it, there, it's just for women, but we are in the works. Oh, we wait, have they're about co-ed. to make an exception for me. <clears throat> no, no, not okay, really. No. Actually, the men of, of the partners of the women who come to camp have really started a crusade to help us fi- create camps for men. So they are in the books for 2017. You know why we want a camp for men? So we can sit there and start, talk about the women. Exactly. You know and, it. And, and get the tips on how to make them happy. And it's really simple. Really simple. Yeah, it's called heavy sedation. <laughs> For us. No, okay. Fine. No, so Camp Parliament really is a place where you can go to disconnect, unwind, uh, get yourself out in nature, reconnect with yourself, and really a sisterhood of women who are looking to make life better. However... Let me be devil's advocate. This isn't like Kumbaya. No, it's not Kumbaya at all. Actually, I collected the experts in health and wellness and sex and love and parenting and productivity. Well, you did that because of your history as a producer on television. You you had the Rolodex to kill all Rolodexes, so you just picked up the phone. 100%. All these years that I spent as a producer at the Today Show and and in network news, I really found... uh, people who had the answers, had the secrets to helping you live life better. And so I've brought them together and mixed it with fun, with wilderness and fun and games and really created a program that is completely turning women's travel on its ear. However, and we are now going into the luxury camping side of, the, of things. Hotels are looking for luxury vacations that have purpose and their customers are asking for programming that they're not getting in normal hotels so we've just partnered with the fairmont in the grand del mar in san diego and in september we're going to be doing three days uh, of a spa-based camp experience it does not get any better than that for women who want to be pampered with a purpose so basically, we, how many people will be involved in this? How many? Just 30. It's Just a very 30. small, intimate group. Right. All learning how to say the word garçon. Exactly. I, I knew it. No, I knew or it. learning how to say the word no. That's one of the things we do. So we bring in... Co- you see, I told you, we have, to, we have to have a camp for us so we can talk about the women, because it's the women who say no. No, no, no. <laughs> we don't say no enough. And so, so we have experts there who are going to teach you how to receive and how to sort of learn how to not always be a giver but but learn how to take care of yourself we have someone there who's talking about productivity we have someone who's going to teach you how to meditate even if you've tried four thousand times and Deepak Chopra can't teach you this woman can teach you you know what's amazing to me and and I know this because well you shared this information with me off offline and that is you know hotels don't make money when you just stay once airlines don't make money if you just fly once you need to want to come back and tell your friends you have a return ratio that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. We, we just started three years ago, and we have a 40% return rate. Women come to this experience to be able to get out in nature and to learn and to pick up tools to help them elevate their lives. We, as, as human beings today, men and women, we don't deal with stuff until it's on fire. You don't go to the doctor until your foot's falling off. You don't deal with the problem until it really is imp- really putting a roadblock into your life. And so what we do is we bring in these experts in all these fields and they give you tangible tools that can help you in all areas of your life. And so we do it. And there's a travel component. There's a huge travel component. Women come to, we, we go to campsites, little kids' summer camps we rent out in the off-season. Are there now, s'mores? There's always s'mores. Dark chocolate <laughs> sea salt s'mores. How about that? Um, but now the hotel industry is really looking for programming. They say their guests who are paying a lot of money to stay in these beautiful places are really kind of tired of sitting by the pool and, and hitting a golf course. And they're looking to learn and to improve their lives, but not in a, they don't want to sit in a Holiday Inn or a Hyatt watching PowerPoint demonstrations all weekend. So we combine this real purposeful education, helping women find their passion, write their legacy, figure out what they want to be when they grow up and learn. So it's about the next chapter. It's about the next chapter. And it's also about how to Take what you're doing right now and make yourself a little happier. Women today are really frustrated with the speed of life and the technology that's spinning around them. And it's a way to disconnect and reconnect with yourself and a community. We build community at these camps. And there's you, can, you can't go to a hotel and be part of a community in most cases. And this is a new program that Fairmont is jumping into based on the trend of 
women who want to connect with each other and create a place and a space. This one's about pampering, but it's also about living life better. It's about pampering, but let's be honest, it's not about just a spa. No. Although we are shutting down the spa for five hours to br- each day to bring in programs that are going to help women. We're going to do circles. We're going to do these workshops that really involve tools, tangible tools that can help these women figure out what they want to be, figure out how they can live life better, and get happier. That's the bottom line. And the name of the program is called Camp Powerment, and the the website is an easy one, camppowerment.com. No men allowed yet. Not yet, but soon. It's coming. This is this is a trend. This is a trend. Tammy, may I? You may. But this this really is a trend. People really want to go away and vacation, but they want to learn. They want they don't want to just read. They magazines. want a more genuine, a more authentic experience. Exactly, and that's what they get. And they also get a community that they connect with afterwards, which is kind of mind-boggling. Right. They're doing reunions all over the country right See, now. See, you know, there's such a thing as a girlfriend getaway. This is so much more intense. It really, it's intense, but it's fun. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now at radio clearance, over. That's Clarence, over. Over. Roger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining me now is something that is better than that. He knows Beverly Hills better than just about anybody. He's the author of the Beverly Hills Hotel and Bungalows, and of course, the other hotel, the other book, of course, Beverly Hills, The First 100 Years, Robert Anderson. And we've met before because uh, a couple of years ago, we did this, this show from Beverly Hills, and, and once again, you, you just enlightened me with so many great stories of people who don't really know the true Beverly Hills story. What can I do to tell you? Well, let's start. I mean, first of all, give me a, a sense of space and size. What, how big is Beverly Hills? Well, Beverly Hills is about five square miles. Um, Beverly Hills started off as a, in 1906 as an um, oil development company. There were oil rigs here. There were oil rigs here, and they didn't find oil. So um, uh, Henry Huntington had laid in his trolley car tracks that ran throughout Santa Monica Boulevard, Burton Way, through the city. And he eventually laid in 1,100 miles of track throughout Southern California. And Henry Huntington has the uh, Huntington Library and Museum in Pasadena and San uh, San Marino area. And what he did is he laid a track through here. And we had a stop here in Beverly Hills. At that time, it was called Morocco Junction, which um, back in the early 1900s, they had themes for the different cities they were opening. They had Venice with the canals and the... And the gondoliers. And, and, and by the way, they, they really did have them. Yes, they did. I know. And Seal Beach and Huntington Beach, which Henry Huntington. So in any case, he laid out these tracks, and the money came. Nothing sold for the first hmm, eight years. You're, boy, to be back around then, wow. Right. 1906. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell you a story. Is my grandfather bought what's now Brooks Brothers on Rodeo Drive for $1,500, <laughs> okay? I made that much money sitting here in front of you in the, just the last couple of minutes. And um, it's, uh, it's unbelievable the prices that are going out of control here. It's, uh, Chanel just sold recently for $152 million for 7,500 square feet on Rodeo Drive. And... I think they'd all be quite amazed. My great-grandmother, who built the Beverly Hills Hotel in 1911 and opened it with my grand- grandfather in 1912, in May of 1912, that there was literally nothing here. Everything was built around the Beverly Hills Hotel. Not to take away from the Montage, which we are at now. It's a beautiful hotel, but this is the grand, grand dame of Beverly Hills. and every It's the Pink Palace. It's the Pink Palace. Now... What happened was, is that this was in the middle of nowhere. And you've seen the photographs, and it sits here by itself. And it was a big venture to come here from the Hollywood Hotel that my great-grandmother had taken managership in 1902 and built that out to 250 rooms over the next 10 years before coming and building the Beverly Hills Hotel. 
at Henry Huntington's urging. Now, Henry Huntington and uh, Max Whittier and Burton Green owned oil companies. They didn't find it here, but they found water here, which was, as we know today, is even more valuable than, you know, anything. So um, they decided they, the movie, There Will Be Blood, um, was based around uh, bringing oil, the oil people, and the, the, where they were developing oil fields up in Kern County, and they did quite well. Um, That's Bakersfield. Bakersfield. And the money, they wanted to treat their families to something special. So Beverly Hills was set out in such a way that north of Santa Monica Boulevard were mid-range homes, acre plus, and then above Sunset were five acre pluses where you could keep your horses. <laughs> and uh, actually the Beverly Hills Hotel kept 20 gated Kentucky horses for the guests' private use. And they'd have rides up in the hills behind the hotel. And as a matter of fact, they actually had fox hunts behind the hotel, which uh, people find hard to believe. Now they in the bar. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. So it has developed into something special, the city. Um, I mean, I'm very proud to live here and I'm, my, my family's heritage here in Beverly Hills. And I feel very comfortable here with our police, fire, and medical attention. That Well, it's a community that everybody seems to know everybody else. Well, they do. Or if they don't, they know someone else who does. Yeah. Um, I happened to have lunch yesterday with the, the new chief of police, who's a woman, who just came on, and she's a lovely lady. And I had lunch with her yesterday, and we're very progressive here, let's put it that way. Yes, you are. Now, it's a whole lot more expensive to be here now than it was when your grandmother showed up. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, and so many people have been priced out of it. So you have a great tourism volume here. People like to come and shop, and, and they better bring their wallets, right? Not. I mean, we, we go back to the days of Beverly Hills Cop, you know, the, the, Eddie, the, Eddie, the Eddie, Murphy movie, I mean, Eddie Murphy movies. What's changed since that? You know, what's funny is I was watching that the other night. They had, it was on AMC or something, and I was watching it, and some of the stores that they go past on Rodeo Drive. Right. And I'm going, wow, you know, the Daisy uh, discotheque. That's and, gone. Well, a lot of it's gone. Um, but Gucci and uh, Fred Heyman started this trend for the street, and Dick Carroll from Carroll. Well, Fred Heyman was Giorgio, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah. And um, as a matter of fact, unfortunately, he, he passed, passed away. He just passed away recently. just yes. passed away, yeah. and they're having services for him this Sunday. And he brought us that Robert Graham sculpture on Rodeo Drive that's a beautiful torso, and uh, we're going to pay tribute to him. He and... Betty and his son Robert are very close friends of mine. But I remember the days of Bijan. Oh, yeah. And, and Bijan was, was a whole different approach to marketing. It was basically, let me insult you and you can stand in line for it. Make an appointment. You had to make an appointment to, to overpay. <laughs> you had to make That's an true. appointment to overpay. It's true. Right? And people did. Yep. Now, I remember a story that I'm sure you do. It was on New Year's Eve. I remember it so well. I was, I was going to a party. Actually, it was New Year's night. So it was the night of January 1st. And I get a police radio call. I was working for CBS then. Hmm. That there was a fire on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, and I'm also a fireman in New York. Oh. And so when I, I said, they said, can you get over there right away? So I run over. And the minute I get over there, I knew right away it was arson because I saw the fire burning in four separate locations. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the Sheikh's home on Sunset That's Boulevard. Right. That's that right. they just completely torched one. I mean, completely gone. It's called something lightning. Yeah. But yeah, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, that was something. They had a whole uh, interior room that was uh, climate controlled. that could go from twenty below zero to one hundred and fifteen in a matter of five or ten minutes. We're talking with Robert Anderson, the author of the Beverly Hills Hotel, and of course Beverly Hills, the first one hundred years. When that fire happened, that was almost a turning point uh, in in the most recent history of Beverly Hills because. People didn't know what to do in terms of zoning because before he before he showed up, you could have as big a place as you want. Well, no one thought that anyone would possibly do what he did. And as a matter of fact, when he had uh, statues out in front with their private parts painted in yeah. and plastic flowers. And every bus and car stopped to take a picture. It was yeah. unbelievable. Robert, stick with us because when we sure. come back, we have a whole lot more to talk about the history past, present, and maybe even future of Beverly Hill.
Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Back to that silly fire. I mean, first of all, before the fire happened, it was a big traffic jam on Sunset Boulevard because everybody stopped to take pictures of the nude statues. That's correct. Right? right? Which were quite colorful, I might add. No, they were painted in with strategic parts. Yes, they were. And uh, so we didn't have building codes for residential at that point in time. Isn't that no, amazing? No one thought anybody would do something like this. And that's when it all started. But after the fire, it sat there for about 15 to 20 years. It was in litigation. It was in litigation. The guy, the sheik, disappeared and had numerous wives. And it was in litigation. Well, if you have, there's a rule. If you have numerous wives, sooner or later, you're going to have no. to disappear. Half here, half there, and then you're out. <laughs> that, what's in that property now? There are two very large homes there. And um, it's right on Sunset Boulevard. And um, it's a very expensive home, but it's right on Sunset Boulevard. And like when when we were kids or younger, this wasn't Sunset Boulevard wasn't a freeway, and that's what's happened here. The traffic has gotten so horrendous here in Beverly Hills. All right, so let me ask you this question because you've been here so long, you'd know this. What's your secret place to go hide out in Beverly Hills? Where do you like to go hide out? Well, one of the places I like to go is down by the pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And most people don't know this, and I'm sharing it with you and your listeners, that you can actually go down to the pool, have lunch, um, and look at the beauties or the gentlemen down by the pool and have your lunch. And I'm just that's a little tip. And you don't have to be a guest there. That's correct. That's a cool thing. And, of course, the Cabana Boys at the Beverly Hills Hotel are notorious. That's right. <laughs> They know who, what, where, and... They know everything. Too much. Well, there was a guy, and you remember him, who used to be the maitre d' at the polo lounge. Dino. Dino. And Dino had quite... He had quite the operation going there. There was a rule. Let's see how much you you and I will agree on this. They had a rule at the polo lounge that no unescorted women were allowed into the polo lounge after 6 o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. I've been happily married for 30 years, and, and, uh, and but I've seen some really strange things go on there. Do you remember when they had phones that they would bring to your table bring and plug in? Exactly. And they had the little Philip Morris man. Yes, he, with, and he was a small, he was, he was, a, he was a little a person. He was vertically person. challenged. Yes. And he'd go around with this clipboard and with bells on it saying, Paging Mr. And the, Greenberg. And the yep. biggest scam was you wanted to have yourself paged at the polo lounge, even if nobody was calling. And the pool. Yes. And the pool. And, have... and by the way, I know the guy whose name was Johnny. His name was Johnny. And he yep. had a, and he had a right. little high voice. Phone call me. Mr. And you really? For me? Of course, you were the one who called yourself. Yeah. I mean, the egos that were there were unbelievable. But if you still go in there today, they will tell you this is where Marilyn Monroe sat. This is where Clark Gable sat. This is where Jimmy Cagney sat. This is right. Mm-hmm. And, and it's amazing. And how many deals have been made in that polo lounge? Well, Jeffrey Katzenberg said that everybody in the, in the movie or uh, film industry or the industry in general has had one major deal happen there at the hotel. Some instrumental deal that has happened in the polo lounge or on the grounds of the hotel in the business. and um, But Katzenberg was notorious for double booking breakfasts. He'd have one breakfast at the Bel Air and one breakfast at the Polo Lounge. Well, it's both owned by the same people now. It is now, yes, of course. All right. The Dorchester guys, of course. And Warren Beatty, you know, would... I'm going to tell you a funny story. For those people who remember the movie Shampoo, <laughs> <laughs> now we can go back and talk about that scene from, the, uh, from that movie, yeah. So I'm with Warren Beatty, and he was... I think he's still working on it, Howard Hughes... Um, he was going to play Howard Hughes in the later years, and we were working at the hotel, and I had gotten him photographs of what the actual phone numbers were on the phone and what the bungalows looked like in the 50s and 60s. And he told me one day, 
he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. He said, I was walking back to my room, my bungalow at the hotel, and I was being followed by these three big men in black suits. And I got back to the room and I called the front desk and I said, hey, who are these people from the Tattler or something that are following me? They said, Mr. Hugh, Mr. Mr. Beatty, is, it's not about you, it's about um, Howard Hughes, and he's in there, and those are his men that are following you. So Exactly. Now, <laughs> the real story that I want to share with you about Howard Hughes, because yeah. my mom was a Los Angeles native. She grew up here, mm-hmm. and, and she tells a couple of unbelievable stories. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? When he was running RKO uh, Pictures, which was on Melrose Avenue, right where Paramount Studios is now. Uh, Robert, I mean, Howard Hughes was, and he, kept, and he kept a number of bungalows at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And Howard Hughes, I'm, I'm, guys, I'm not making this up, he was obsessed with breasts. And he was the one who designed Rosalind Russell's bullet bra. Remember that? Yep. But what he would do, and this is just such a wild story, he would find some 17-year-old beautiful busty girl in the Midwest and have her sent out by train with her mother as her escort and they'd put them in the bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel and say, stay here, you're on full expenses until Mr. Hughes calls. Sometimes he didn't call for a year. They were sitting in there, just it was just basic ka-ching, 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 room service, having the greatest time, probably at the pool with the pool boys, yeah. who knows. And then when it was finally time, if he ever did call, to have the girl come over to the studio... He had actually driven the route from the Beverly Hills Hotel all the way over and around Melrose, and he drove it in such a way, this is how crazy he was, he wanted to have the driver go only a specific way. Not the fastest way, not the slowest way, but the smoothest way, because he didn't want the breasts to jostle. <laughs> and that's only when he called. There were some people who never got called, and they were st- maybe they're still living at the hotel. Well, there were starlets that he would have three or four in the actual hotel, in different parts of the hotel, this guy was amazing how he would juggle these women. I mean, big stars, Ava Gardner, and you know, I'm not even going to go into who they all were, but they were big stars. And he'd go to one room for a while and then go over to another room for a while, and he had this, this whole so thing. So basically, going. he was an air traffic controller. <laughs> basically. Yeah. A very dangerous uh, air traffic controller. And another thing about Howard Hughes is that Smitty was the front doorman at the hotel and was there for 50 years. Well, he saw everything. Yeah, he saw everything. And Howard Hughes, Smitty told me that he, Howard Hughes borrowed his car once and, and never brought it back and <laughs> lost it somewhere. So he bought him a new car. He had one car parked out on Crescent Drive that just sat there. The wheels all went flat on it. Weeds were growing through it. And the Beverly Hills Hotel would never ticket it. I mean, the Beverly Hills Police would never Because they knew it. whose car it was. Yeah, yeah, see, money talks. Yes, it does. It, it still yes, talks. It still talks. So, okay, how many years later, what's, is there anything that surprises you about Beverly Hills? Nothing. Nothing. Um, we've had quite an influx of uh, different nationalities that um, the homes that they're building here are just so out of control and so big that I don't understand it, why someone needs... Because only two people are living in there. Well, I don't know. I mean... It's like, you know, they're building 50, 70,000 square foot homes here. And especially up on the ridges around Mulholland and Beverly Park and some of these other locations, you know, I want to be able to yell for my wife and she can hear me, right? You know, I got a 5,000 square foot house. I'm just fine with that. And, uh, no, there's been changes here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What have you liked about the changes? There's a big pause here. Um, change is inevitable. And if we can control it, I'm a commissioner for the Parks and Recreation for the city of Beverly Hills. And we oversee our park system, and we've done some fabulous things. One of the things is is we just restored the fountain at Wilshire and Santa Monica Boulevard. Oh, right by the Beverly Hilton. 
by the Beverly Hilton and the new Waldorf Astoria right. that's being built there. And, um, I mean, this takes a lot of money. When it was originally put in by Harold Lloyd's mother in the Beverly Hills Women's Club, I think it cost like $12,000. We spent a million and a half just to put it back together. You know, it, But it's something that when I was a child, and you probably saw it as a young oh, man. Oh, of course. The beautiful colors and the lights. Well, and, you, you, you based your trip based on the fountain. You know, you, and you could see the fountain because, you know, oh, here comes Wilshire or here comes Santa Monica. That's right. Exactly. And then the other thing we did here in the, the 100th anniversary of Beverly Hills of the incorporation was uh, I put in the sign that lights up that says Beverly Hills as a recreation of what the, you would see from the trolley stop across the street. Amazing. And then in 2014, we added the lily pond in front of it. So I'm very pleased about that. So you're happy about some things. Yes, I am. Good. <laughs> Robert Anderson, the author of Beverly Hills, The First Hundred Years. What a remarkable book it is. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. But I would walk 500. probably our best source of information because they live what they do. He's the fire chief of Beverly Hills, Ralph Mundell. How are you, sir? I'm well. Thank you for having me here. Oh, listen, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, I always like to say, you know, you've been in everybody's restaurant. You've been in everybody's hotel. You've been in everybody's house. You know, people take tours of Beverly Hills to meet the celebrities. You respond to celebrities and everybody else. We do that occasionally, yes. Yeah. We, we've been to a few celebrities' homes, yes. It's a different way to see a tour. <laughs> and, and often, it's uh, we don't get to view the home or get to look around the property like others get to do because right. we're focused on the patient. Sure. And when you're talking that, you talk about medevacs and, and, and medical calls, too. Yes. Yes, that's correct. I mean, most people don't realize that, like, for example, I'm, I'm a volunteer fireman in New York, and one-third of our calls are medical. Two-thirds of ours. About 65% of our calls really? are emergency medical services related. Wow. So every one of your stations has EMTs and, and, and paramedics. Correct. We have three paramedic rescues in the city, and then all of our personnel are EMT certified. So I'm going to presume that when you get banged out, the, the paramedics just roll anyway. We send paramedics on every emergency medical service call that we get. Wow. And then EMTs follow up to help them move the patient, get them transported to the hospital, whatever the need might be. What's the, the most surprising thing when people come to visit you from other departments and they're coming into town? What do they want to see? They often want to see our oldest fire engine, which is a 1928 That's your parade, Air, that's your parade car, right? 1928 Aaron's Fox. Yeah. Where do you was, keep it? We keep it at the fire station, headquarters fire station. We purchased two of them, the city did, in 1928. And now we took those two and made it one. Uh, the one that we have was in service until 1966, and it's absolutely beautiful. And hopefully you'll get by to take a look and at it. And it still runs. It does. Wow. It still, still pumps water. It still runs. We take it for parades and other events in the city. Right. But your equipment now is a little bit more sophisticated than that. A little bit, yes. Yeah. I always tell people if they're staying at a hotel or a high-rise, I like staying below the eighth floor. I like staying below the sixth floor. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think that's uh, because our ladders generally reach on our aerial ladders only to about the 6th or 7th or 8th floor, depending on how close we can get to the building. Uh, but keep in mind, all of those high-rise buildings have good shelter-in-place areas and good exit areas with their stairwells. And sprinklers. Most, well, every uh, hotel, every high-rise in this city, with the exception of two, are fully sprinklered and fully alarmed. And the other two, they got grandfathered in somehow. They did, and they happen to be uh, apartment buildings. Wow. Yeah. But everybody, if you're going to build a, a hotel like the Montage, you better have the fire codes up to speed. Fully sprinklered. Since 1988, every property, every building in the city has uh, been required to be sprinklered. And, of course, the lesson we all learned was the MGM Grand Fire back in 1981 in, in Las Vegas. That was the big one for That us. was the wake-up call for everybody, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, that was a huge one. And you realize the life of loss and so much of that could have been prevented by keeping that fire small. And they just couldn't control it because they didn't no. have the systems. No. And the only way to get water on the fire was to actually drag hose lines through the floors and, and get water on it through the standpipe system. And by that time, it was too late. Very big. Most sprinklers, most fires are put out by two or less sprinklers. 96, I believe, percent of the fires in sprinkler buildings are put out by two sprinklers or less. Yes. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you uh, have a gas oven or a gas stove, 
and you have a, a, a heat-activated a heat, a heat sprinkler above it, don't leave the pilot light on too long. <laughs> you need to be very careful. We, we see uh, with production companies, movie production companies, they'll sometimes put their lights uh, too close to the sprinklers when they're and that'll activate And that'll activate the sprinklers. That will activate the sprinkler. Wow. Yeah, and a lot of people think that when one sprinkler goes off, they all go off throughout no, the building. Heat, they're heat, they're heat yeah, They're all independent. Yeah. All right. The most important question I got to ask you, other than fire safety, of course, is you got to eat. Yep. Where do you guys look, like to go out and hang out to eat? You know, my favorite restaurant is a small place called Porta Via, just up the street from here. It's got a real nice open environment. They've got a wide uh, range of food items and soups and, and ice creams and desserts. Really neat. I get to see a lot of people that I know in the city, and then I get to meet people that I don't know very well. And it's, it's really neat, a really great environment. How's their fire safety? Great. Yeah, I know the owner. <laughs> yeah, you expect he, it every time you eat there. He often asks me to come in and take a look around for their storage and things that they do a little differently, and we're happy to do that. Great. What's, what's one of your hidden places, a real hidden place? Uh, I, I think probably it's kind of hidden in plain sight at Xi'an. It's a Chinese restaurant, again, on Cannon Drive. Uh, on the east side of the street. It's a small place. It is a small place. And I don't know what their occupant load is, but I'm guessing it's less than 50 because I can only remember one door going in and out. And so it's... I see, as a fireman, if I only remember, see, only see one door going in and out, I'm sitting facing the window. Of course, yeah. <laughs> There's probably an exit to the rear, but I haven't explored that. But it's really great, and they have um, great servers. They'll give you anything that the, uh, that you want, and they just keep bringing it and keep bringing it, keep asking you what you want more of and what you want to try it's really a neat place what's your biggest challenge i think our biggest challenge right now is replacing the people that we have retiring um there's so many good people in the world and are you trying to tell city. me that the beverly hills fire department's having trouble recruiting we don't have necessarily trouble recruiting but we have trouble getting good quality people got it you've been listening to peter greenberg worldwide Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, and you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.